2: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's one of Georgia's most famous roadways, Peachtree Street. And apparently a bustling section of Peachtree Street needs to be reimagined.
0: The issue is that it doesn't work for anybody. We kind of are half in and half out on Peachtree Street, and that's why we wanted to concentrate on making it actually work in one section of it. So the shared street study that we're doing, as you mentioned in the introduction, is for a small piece of Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta.
1: Atlanta City Planning Commissioner Tim Keene talks about the Peachtree Shared Space Study Now that conversation coming up later in the program. But first, we begin with this, and that's the latest regarding a coronavirus vaccine. The biotech company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Moderna, cites their COVID-19 vaccine is 94 percent effective. And so the news today is that they will ask the FDA for emergency authorization of the vaccine. Now, this comes as many public health officials warn new coronavirus cases and possibly deaths will rise following this Thanksgiving holiday. Now, at the time of this broadcast, 420,601 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in the state. 34,782 have been hospitalized. And of those... 6,493 are considered ICU admissions. And since the state began recording deaths back in March, the number as of today is 8,778. And as always, this information comes from the Georgia Department of Public Health. In other news, back to voting. Early voting for the January 5th runoff begins in just two weeks. This week, President Donald Trump is set to rally for Georgia's two current Republican senators. The president is scheduled to appear this coming Saturday. Uh, right now, we don't know the location for Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. Now, President-elect Joe Biden is also expected to visit Georgia to support their Democratic challengers Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Meanwhile, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger held a press conference earlier today and revealed his office is investigating what he considers all legitimate complaints from the 2020 election. But he also added this.
3: As we move to the December 1st election, which is tomorrow, and the January 5th federal runoffs, we have to remain vigilant. That is why I'm announcing an investigation into third-party groups working to register people in other states to vote here in Georgia. We have opened an investigation into a group called America Votes, who is sending absentee ballot applications to people at addresses where they have not lived since 1994. Vote Forward, who attempted to register a dead Alabama uh, voter, a woman to vote here in Georgia. The New Georgia Project, who sent voter registration applications to New York City at Operation New Voter Registration Georgia, who is telling college students in Georgia that they can change their residency to Georgia and then change it back after the election. Let me be very clear again. Voting in Georgia when you are not a resident of Georgia is a felony.
1: And there's a lot more. And WABE's Emil Moffitt was there, and he now joins me, Emil Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You
4: bet. Good to be here, Rose.
1: A lot to unpack here. Let's begin with this. Let's go back a little bit uh, to a few days ago, because speaking on the Fox News cable network, President Trump said of Governor Kemp, quote, he's done absolutely nothing to question the state's results. But Governor Kemp has responded. What do we know from what the governor had to say? Well,
4: Governor Kemp says he is following the law and letting Secretary of State Raffensperger basically do his job and run elections. Uh, but it should be noted that that Governor Kemp has on multiple occasions uh, called for an audit of absentee ballot signatures without providing any evidence that there has been widespread or quite frankly any fraud involved with those signatures which have already been checked and double checked by county elections officials. So to say that Governor Kemp hasn't done anything is not exactly true. Uh, Has he intervened and asked uh, Secretary of State Raffensburg to overturn the results? He has not. But at the same time, he has made some accusations, made some allegations without really backing them up.
1: And that seems to be a case with pretty much all the allegations regarding voter fraud with the presidential election. There's been nothing to reveal that there has been some substantial or widespread voter fraud processes taking place. But now Raffersberger says he's investigating these organizations. What evidence does he have?
4: Well, it sounds like he has gotten complaints, his office has gotten complaints about uh, certain voters uh, being uh, asked to register or being encouraged to register who may not live uh, in Georgia. These sound like very isolated incidents, but they also sound like specific incidents which are being investigated, which is something that his office has said, uh, we will investigate specific claims uh, of of irregularities or things that are being done uh, against the law. Uh, what they don't want is uh, these accusations that are just wild accusations that don't have any evidence behind them. Uh, but I think they're they're willing to investigate uh, investigations, um, uh, complaints that they do get, um, but at the same time, uh, not buying into every just uh, conjecture, or speculation uh, that, that come about.
1: And he mentioned some pretty high profile organizations now, America Votes, which I believe now is headed by Cecilia Richards, who used to be over Planned Parenthood, uh, also the daughter of Ann Richards, a former uh, late governor of Texas, the New Georgia Voter Project. I mean, these are organizations that we have heard of. uh, But again, he's just saying there are complaints, but no evidence to suggest that, one, the complaints are even valid. He's just investigating Uh, these complaints.
4: That's right. He's looking into the into the complaints. And, you know, these are very nuanced things. You know, someone uh, may still technically be a Georgia resident, maybe in New York for business or for, um, for school or something like that and get a voter registration uh, application saying, hey, you may not be registered to vote even though you're still a legal resident of Georgia as well. Um, so there are a lot of nuance uh, nuances with these details of voter registration. Um, so it may be a case of that. Um, but i think they they're trying to follow up to make sure but i don't think it's any mistake that a lot of these organizations that he mentioned today um were uh, organizations that uh, that typically would uh favor a, a a liberal or progressive uh standpoint mm-hmm. um i think i think secretary raffensperger definitely trying to uh to cover his bases with um with republican voters uh, but at the same time um th- these are invet- uh, complaints that he has received so Uh, He's vowed to uh, to follow up on them.
1: And Emil, correct me if I'm wrong, because these organizations have access or can purchase, whether it's Democrat or Republican, voter rolls, voter information, because that's how they send out their flyers and text messages. How do they get this information?
4: Uh, they can get the information either from requesting it uh, from uh, from the Secretary of State's office, but there's also a lot of publicly available uh, voter data. You can look up um, voter history files from the Secretary of State's website. You can look up information on who voted, um, as far as uh, vote by mail or early voting or in-person voting. So there is a lot of publicly inf- uh, publicly available information that that anybody. Uh, A member of the general public uh, can access Uh, and that's a good that's a good point in that you know just sending somebody a reminder saying hey register to vote or hey um, you may want to request an absentee ballot is not necessarily uh, nefarious or illegal Mm -hmm. um, as long as they are not encouraging someone to break the law just reminding somebody if you're eligible to vote make sure you're registered, make sure you request an absentee ballot. There's a big difference between doing that and going out and and, uh, basically encouraging someone to break the law.
1: And Emil, so much is swirling right now. And as a matter of fact, after our conversation, I'll have a conversation with the ACLU of Georgia regarding some concerns about voter registration, people being able to register to vote and whether or not they need to have a a driver's license or own a car. We'll we'll clear all that up. Uh, But I want to get the latest for our listeners in terms of the recount. This was the recount that the Trump campaign asked for. What's the latest on that? How close is Georgia to being complete with that recount?
4: The deadline is uh, midnight or 1159 on Wednesday night. Uh, So uh, Secretary of State's office is expecting all the counties to be done with their information and then they'll start releasing that data as far as what the machine recount came up with. Uh, Gabriel Sterling from the Secretary of State's office this morning says he's confident that all counties will have that done by the deadline and then uh, they'll compare that to uh, to what we saw earlier, but again, they've said repeatedly that they don't expect this to uh, to change the outcome of the race. It may uh, switch a few votes here or there as far as just the the counting procedure. Sometimes you can have a you know two ballots, absentee ballots, that get stuck together as they go through the machine. So that's where you might see a one off here and there that that it's a difference. Uh, but they're pretty confident that the counties will uh, finish that count, the recount, by Wednesday night, and then we'll have. Uh, a new set of results to to look at and compare to what we've uh, seen before.
1: And will this then probably put an end to any concerns or allegations about George's presidential election being stolen?
4: Well, I'm sure it won't uh, put an end to all of those concerns, but uh, would you just look at the fact that they've been counted three times now, including a hand count of all 4.9 million ballots? I think um, uh, for the most part, people will look at this and say, uh, that the accurate results were were verified and and verified again.
1: And Emil, before I let you go, we should re- we should remind listeners that tomorrow via Facebook Live, you have an event with the Georgia Secretary of State's office and uh, federal official. Correct?
4: Uh, that's right. We'll be talking to uh, Chris Harvey with the Secretary of State's office and also Gabe Sterling, uh, who you may have come familiar with from his uh, his press conferences and his details. We'll be talking to them on Facebook Live. At the WABE Facebook page. So tune in for that. We'll also take your questions, so submit those, uh, and we'll get a chance to, to chat all things uh, November election and January runoff with uh, members of the Secretary of State's office.
1: And you don't have to have a Facebook account. You can just go to the link and automatically it'll take you there, correct?
4: That's right. You can uh, you can watch that. It'll be again Tuesday afternoon at five o'clock. So we hope to see a lot of our uh, our WABE listeners there.
1: I'm gonna submit a question, you're gonna take it. <laughs> <laughs> this
4: one comes from Rose in Atlanta.
1: Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> WABE's Emil Moffat. As always, we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot, Emil.
4: Thank you, Rose. Appreciate it.
1: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's the lone remaining federal election. Georgia's two U.S. Senate seats at stake. Well, who will control the Senate? And perhaps you are tired of seeing, hearing the campaign ads. Well, hang in there because they're not going away anytime soon because the runoff is actually January 5th. Meanwhile, concerns about Georgia's election process also never seem to go away from recent allegations brought by the Republicans that. Georgia's pres- presidential election was somehow filled with nefarious activity, has gone nowhere. And President Donald Trump's claim that the election was stolen from him, which obviously is not true. will join me now to discuss this and some other concerns related to Georgia's election process from the ACLU of Georgia. Executive Director Andrea Young and Sean Young, no relation, the legal director of the ACLU of Georgia. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
5: Thanks. So great to be here with you, Rose. Thanks Young, for having us.
1: Absolutely. Director Young, let's begin with you, and then Sean, you can weigh in as well. Just your thoughts as you reflect on what took place from November 3rd with the allegations that the the election was somehow stolen or there was some you know fraudulent activity. And this is levied against the Georgia Secretary of State, who's Republican, from fellow Republicans. What do you make of all that?
5: Well, Rose... You know, there the ACLU, of course, is interested in making sure that every Georgian who is eligible to vote has a fair opportunity to vote. That is our interest. Mm-hmm. And what we have heard uh, repeatedly uh, from people who identify themselves as Republican is this unfounded allegation about fraud. We've been hearing this when it comes to why we have photo ID. We've been hearing this about you know all kinds of rules. So this is an amplification of a message we continue to hear and which continue to be entirely unsubstantiated. Um, You know, there have, uh, you know, this sort of notion that, you know, Americans are uh, voting when they're not, you know, inappropriately is just not anything that has been documented despite these repeated assertions. And so, you know, our concern is that is the effect that it has on. Uh, people's uh, belief in the system—you know, our democracy—is um, perhaps a little uh, weaker than we thought. You know, democracy is not something we can take for granted, uh, and so it's very disturbing when uh, people who take an oath uh, to uphold the Constitution of the United States uh, make unfounded allegations about our democracy. It's very damaging and very disturbing, and very disappointing to see this uh, from people who hold high elective office
1: sean young what do you make of all this
5: it's kind
1: of
2: sad because these kinds of unfounded rumors have been used throughout u.s history to justify suppressing the votes primarily of african-american voters and we saw a dramatic increase in these kinds of rumor mongering after the nation elected its first African American president. That's no accident. And there has been no evidence of, you know, voters wearing fake mustaches into the polling places pretending to be someone else. Mm -hmm. And now because of these unfounded rumors, we're talking about uh, requiring photo ID of people who Submit absentee ballots. I guess everyone should have a Xerox machine at home now. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we hear routinely to justify making it harder for people to vote unnecessarily.
1: Even last night on 60 Minutes, Chris Krebs basically talked about he said there was no no evidence of any type of election interference that these claims by the president were absolutely false, and Krebs lost his job from Washington to here in Georgia. How do you all, and we're going to get into these other concerns, but I imagine you all then are pretty satisfied with the fact, or maybe not, with Georgia's election that it went pretty smoothly through your eyes, or have you received feedback that there was some issues?
5: Well, I think that what we saw was a result of, you know, heroic efforts on the part of Georgia citizens in one hundred and fifty nine counties. I mean, volunteers that stepped up. We remember, this election took place in a pandemic. Um, you know, we saw in June the difficulties when, you know, senior citizens rightfully uh, don't are, are not able to come out and be poll workers. But we saw across the state thousands and thousands of citizens step up to make sure, our elections uh functioned. Um so I think we should not uh over I think we shouldn't under uh, appreciate um the commitment that Georgians have to democracy, uh the things that people were willing to do, you know, as volunteers, as nonprofits, uh to make sure that people were able to vote. Uh, and so yeah, I'm very proud Uh, of my fellow Georgians for the effort that they, uh, you know, stepped up to really make this work for as many people as possible. And we saw this, we saw, you know, the largest turnout ever, 5 million Mm -hmm. Georgians cast ballots. Um, But it's not to say that they did it without barriers. It's not to say that there weren't, there aren't rules in place that we, think are, are really not appropriate in a democracy, but um, but but do continue in the state of Georgia.
1: So with this runoff in January, and we all know the importance of this, as I mentioned, coming into the segment, and, and Sean, I'll let you start. Uh, what concerns do you all have about voter suppression or any other issues as it relates to that January runoff for those two U.S. Senate seats?
2: You know, there were some problems in the November elections that kind of flew under the radar. Uh, I will say there was definitely improvements in November compared to June. We had short lines on election day, early voting for the most part went relatively smoothly, especially after the first few bumpy days. But there were problems. We had reports of absentee ballots not being processed in a timely manner or absentee ballot applications. Rather, this is a perennial problem that just doesn't seem to go away. They're supposed to process those promptly. And yet voters wait weeks and weeks before they get them back. Mm -hmm. Luckily, uh, we have urged voters to get their absolute ballot applications in yesterday to ensure that these delays don't disenfranchise them. And we also heard reports of voter registrations not being processed, in a timely manner. We had voters whose registrations weren't processed a week before election day. That's a major problem. And so these problems persist and we're just going to keep an eye on them.
1: Do we know if the delay was because they were, those were just received? Do you have any evidence to back up that maybe this was a backlog of some sort?
2: The evidence we've seen is uh, that there was a backlog. Mm -hmm. One issue that counties continue to fail to address is the lack of adequate staffing and training to ensure that these kinds of forms get processed immediately. Mm -hmm. This is no surprise. We get a lot of voter registration forms in at the 30 day deadline. This is not a new issue and continually county elections officials um, either aren't doing it, for some reason, or they just don't have the funding.
1: Hmm. Director Young, what about you? What concerns do you have as it relates to that January 5th, those two uh, runoffs for the U.S. Senate seats?
5: Well, one concern is given the challenge that our counties have with staffing are these multiple recounts. Uh, and so, you know, already stretched uh, counties um, at, at, quite an expense, you know, are still, I think, in a, you know, having to recount for a third time uh, when they need to really be switching now to, to preparation for the runoff. And so the concern is that this only exacerbates uh, those problems. Uh, and then also, you know, some of this rulemaking that's occurred mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be, you know, there are over 20,000 uh, Georgia uh, 17-year-olds who will turn 18 between uh, November 3rd and January 5th. They are eligible under Georgia law to register to vote. Uh, and so anything that discourages them, mm-hmm. uh, we're very concerned about. And there's some new rulemaking uh, that seems it could create some hurdles. In addition to these challenges around processing apps, uh, registrations, during a holiday.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott and I'm joined by Andrea Young, Executive Director of the ACLU of Georgia, and Sean Young, the Legal Director of the organization. And we're talking about some concerns they have regarding the January 5th runoff and also some concerns about Georgia's voter registration process for new eligible voters. Let's get into those th- rules because, and we also should note that we reached out to the Georgia Secretary of State's office will have a response for them. I want you all to, to go first in terms of explaining what rules you all have concerns about.
2: Yeah. Uh, so last week, there were a few rules that were proposed by the state election board. Uh, two of them were, were great. Uh, they extend the authorization to provide drop boxes, mm-hmm. and re- they require counties—before it was discretionary, now they require counties to process absentee ballot uh, ballots sooner— and open those envelopes before election day. There was one proposed rule that was rescinded and will be transmitted as a bulletin and we haven't seen the final version of the bulletin yet. So I wanna be a little careful. Mm -hmm. But the wording that we've seen could be misread to categorically block the voter registrations of every eligible voter that doesn't have a Georgia's driver's license or a DDS issued ID. And that is as crazy as it sounds. I probably don't need to remind folks that there are lower income people who don't drive and uh, they are primarily people of color. And there are a lot of young people who are now eligible to vote whose parents don't give them free cars. The purpose of this bulletin was to uh, catch alleged out of state voters who are pretending allegedly to live in Georgia to cast a vote in the runoffs. but. If you misread this bulletin, it could categorically block the registrations of perfectly eligible voters who don't have cars.
1: And we should note, because what we're hearing um, is that this proposed rule, to be fair or clear, would direct counties to give them options, several options to review, I guess, all the criteria or, for lack of a better word, evidence to determine whether or not someone registering to vote is an actual Georgia resident. But you say there's problematic in that if you're going to tie it to a Georgia's driver's license or identification card or something related to the, the registration on their vehicle. That's what you're saying. That would be problematic. That's right. I, I, I'm not
2: disputing that the bulletin does reaffirm that county election officials can examine evidence of residency, which they can already do. But the wording is such in such a way, and the timing of it, I really fear that county elections officials can misread it to categorically mm-hmm. block people. So,
1: block what should the Secretary of them. State's office do in through your lens to either clear this up? In speaking with them, they, they did not agree to come on the program, but through speaking with our producers, we're reassuring that this was not a rule; that this was something that had been pretty much made up by a Journalist, a citizen journalist, and that this was not even something to be concerned about. Your thoughts on that? Micah,
2: yeah, you know, my concern is how a lay person, accounting election officials who is not a lawyer, interprets this uh, issuance. I don't know that there's many Georgians who know the difference. The legal difference between a rule and a bulletin Um, something that the Secretary of State office issues to all county election officials are taken seriously. By them they're not just going to disregard it, and so the concern is that this wording could be misconstrued to block these voters and by blocking, let me make it clear. um, An election official could misread this rule to think that they have to now issue challenge letters to force these voters to appear at a hearing, potentially exposing them to COVID-19, to justify their residency here. What we need the Secretary of State to do is either not issue this potentially misleading bulletin um, and or to emphasize that residency determinations must be individualized. You cannot categorically block voters that, all voters that have a driver's license um, because that potentially violates federal law, and it's wrong. And what do I mean by individualized? If a voter says on the registration form that they live on Mars, or that they live out of state, or that they're Mickey Mouse, or you know they did a social media post saying you know I'm going to falsely claim Georgia residents just to vote, yeah, those voters should be looked at. Mm-hmm. But to categorically block everyone who doesn't have a driver's
1: license, I mean that's just absurd. So you're also saying that even if someone did not have a driver's license, that the challenge, the fact that the challenge could be made could also hinder because a person may not want to, they may not follow through on it.
5: And the rule requires, you know, is already quite stringent for, you know, a photo, a state issued photo ID. So particularly as again, our concern about students. So if you, you know, you have your student ID um why it's this it's this this concern that again the driver's license is being elevated as the most important form of of identification and it is certainly and it's just something that you know younger people lower income people you know do not necessarily have uh and so the concern is that it you know it's discriminatory against people who are low income younger and who disproportionately are people of color Certainly, the rules already allow and require appropriately that, you know, people are Georgia residents. Yeah.
1: Someone listening says, well, so let's be clear. If I don't have a Georgia's driver's license or Georgia issued identification, they can still register to vote because there are other forms of ID that will be accepted. Correct. That's what the Georgia Secretary of State's office tells us, tells us correct? That's.
2: Yeah. That's right. And I'll also remind folks on the voter registration form, you can put in the last four digits of your social security number. If you don't have a Georgia issued ID.
1: We have had so many conversations, (laughs) Director Young and Sean Young for years now. I feel like we're having the same conversation over and over every big election season. Yeah. yeah,
5: The concern, the, the concern seems to be that, um, you know, some folks seem that, that they'd rather control the electorate than persuade the electorate, right? So, you know, the, um, there's a lot of effort put into restricting, you know, and, and suppressing the vote. Um, rather than, you know, our position is that every eligible Georgian should have a fair opportunity to vote. And you know, the outcome and, and they vote for the candidates of their choice and they vote on the policies that they care about and that's what democracy is. Uh, and, and that, you know, these and efforts to try to that efforts that clearly have a disproportionate impact, especially on people of color, is part of this legacy in Georgia that makes it so difficult for African Americans to vote. You know, my dad tried, was registering people to vote in South Georgia in the 50s and mm-hmm. prompted a Klan rally. So that's our legacy. And we need to work very, very hard to get away from that. We want everyone to vote, vote safely when, they, you know, be eligible. The, you know, there's certainly, you know, in the past, we've had rules that allow people to, to bring all kinds of uh, of of. Evidence that you know of their registration, their you know their water bill, their you know just a whole host of things that not necessarily this photo ID requirement. Um, so that's something that we will continue to be concerned about uh, the photo ID requirement and how uh, how it suppresses people's ability to register.
1: And meanwhile, as my colleague Emil Moffat is reporting at the moment of this conversation. Brad Raffersberger is holding a press conference. He's talking about investigating, quote, third-party groups who are attempting to register voters for January, says his office has received complaints that some groups are trying to register people who are not Georgia residents. What do y'all make of this? Valid complaints or folks just trying to disrupt the process by creating these false narratives?
5: It's hard to know, and particularly when, you know, during this particular election season, You know, there have been, uh, I think, over 30 uh, challenges brought, all that have been thrown out, most recently by uh, in the Court of Appeals in in Pennsylvania, with a scathing indictment of of complaints that not only um, have no, don't actually, of complaints that just are totally unsubstantiated. So, unfortunately, there's been so much bad faith um, in this you know election around you know these quote unquote you know fraud allegations that um it's hard to take them you know it's hard to take them seriously you know i mean there's nothing i mean investigations are appropriate when there are well-founded allegations but you know just saying it doesn't make it so
1: sean you want to add anything to that
5: it's kind of sad and
2: maybe even unsurprising that whenever People of color and African-Americans flex their political muscles. Suddenly you get these complaints coming out of the woodwork. Uh, The state and this country has had a long history of suppressing organizations led by people of color that are just trying to register eligible voters. And so uh, we can't forget that history.
1: Hmm. We shall wait and see. We should note that more than 800,000 absentee ballots applications I believe have been requested um, so uh, we could see some record turnout for a runoff that's for sure um, for January 5th just in general. Andrew Young, executive director of the ACLU of Georgia and Sean Young, legal director of the organization. thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
5: Thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much. I want to remind folks early voting starts December 14th.
5: That's right.
1: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It is Georgia's most famous street. And according to the Atlanta History Center, quote, Peachtree Street was an important Native American trail connecting Fort Daniel in present-day Gwinnett County to the creek settlement of Standing Peachtree on the Chattahoochee River, close quote. Information you can always use because I did not know that. It is, yes, Atlanta's most iconic street and it could be transformed. Maybe folks want that. Yes, Peachtree Street stretches from downtown Atlanta through Midtown all the way up through Buckhead. Obviously, along the way, there are several skyscrapers, Atlanta attractions, restaurants, shopping locations, and more. And when you combine all of those elements pre pandemic, depending on the time of the day, this street could be a traffic nightmare. That's the best way to put it. Flooded with cars and buses. And any, anything else that's on wheels? Well, the City of Atlanta Department of City Planning launched a study called the Peachtree Shared Study Space to reimagine Atlanta's signature street as a shared space for all. And Joining me now to talk more about this is, of course, Tim Keene, the Commissioner of Atlanta's Department of City Planning. Commissioner Keene, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
0: I'd much rather be at your studio, Rose, <laughs> but thank you for having me virtually.
1: Well, and we're not going to talk about scooters, are we? <laughs>
0: Well, we can if you want. There's
1: a few around. Listen, if you want to ride a scooter on Peachtree Street, you go right ahead, whoever you are. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about Peachtree Street, though, just for a moment. Before we get into this study. Absolutely. How would you assess Peachtree Street in terms of mobility for folks? We won't even get into doing heavy traffic. We know what that's like. But how would you assess Peachtree Street and where, where it should be and where it is right now?
0: Well, first of all, let me say that Peachtree Street in the city is about 16 miles mm-hmm. if you take the entire length of peach street from downtown atlanta to to where buckhead becomes brookhead and that's 16 or so miles mm-hmm. and for the most part i would characterize it as a street that really doesn't work for anybody uh in the sense that it's kind of it's conflicted <laughs> as a street because it it's uh supposed to be a street that's great for walking and cycling and it's it tends to not be there are some few places that are and as he said it's congested often I'll say that that every great street is very congested so that's not terribly concerning the issue is the that it doesn't work for anybody you know we we kind of are half in and half out on Peachtree Street and that's why we wanted to concentrate on making it actually work in one section of it so the shared street study that we're doing, as you mentioned in the introduction, is for a small piece of Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's get some clarity, Commissioner, because we've had this conversation before about Peachtree Street in particular, And folks have always sort of been surprised that the maintaining of Peachtree Street, that falls on the state, correct?
0: For most of Peachtree Street in the city, that that is the case. There is a portion of it that is not, but but it's a small portion.
1: Is that then the core of a challenge in all these years and decades in trying to maybe reimagine Peachtree Street in the past? Because it's divided a roadway between the state and a little bit to the city?
0: It may have been in the past. I don't think that's the great challenge today. Mm -hmm. The Georgia Department of Transportation is progressive on urban streets as it relates to trying to remake them and, and redesign them as places that accommodate other modes of transportation. Look at, you know, the Georgia Department of Transportation was instrumental in, in seeking to do a, a bike lane on Upper Peachtree Street um, up into B- Brookwood and Buckhead, and really, really championed that idea. And so I think. While that may have been an issue in the past, it's not so much one today.
1: So why the need now for this shared space study?
0: We're concentrating on downtown, as I said, Rose, mm-hmm. and we we looked at from North Avenue down to Marietta Street. That's just, just over a mile, mm-hmm. 1.2 miles. And we decided to concentrate on a section right in Peachtree Center. It's actually just a quarter mile. And the reason for concentrating there is, number one, that Downtown Atlanta is fundamentally important to how Atlanta grows. When you think about our city and our region, we're a large region of six million people. There's five hundred thousand or so in the city, and then a very so a very you know small from a population standpoint city in a large region, and then in the city a small fraction of those residents live in downtown and downtown has vast areas of underutilized property and even buildings. So as we grow, it is incredibly beneficial for downtown Atlanta to be leading that growth that those vacant lots that you see or surface parking lots and underused or vacant buildings that they get occupied because we've already invested in all the infrastructure there. Number one is we felt it incredibly important for us to do everything we can to help downtown Atlanta. And what that means is making a public ground. It means making a city out of downtown Atlanta. And that really has much to do with the streets. And as we, I know I'm going on a bit, but, but the, the thing about that one section right in Peachtree Center is that that's the densest place in, in, the, in the city. And yet the street doesn't work, as I said, for anyone. And we can, we think if we do it right here, we can create an environment that is conducive to a lively, vibrant, urban kind of place.
1: Well, let's look at that stretch then, because if you're talking about from North Avenue all the way downtown, and we've had this conversation before, economic development may be a driving force, no pun intended, in all of this. But the city of Atlanta has a role to play, obviously. But you look at some of these, you talked about density. Well, let's look at some of these other areas where there's nothing there. I mean, I don't know what's happening with the old Civic Center. Now the underground has been sold Again, <laughs> you know, the Gulch, Whatever's going to happen with that, who knows. So can you reimagine Peachtree Street without fully knowing what the economic development landscape is going to look like? Because that's got to be key if you're talking about that area and talking about downtown.
0: Well, for Atlanta and really for everyone in the region, it would be best if all of those buildings and sites that you mentioned from the Civic Center to Centennial large yards on, on uh, underground Atlanta and, and many, many, many more, mm-hmm. that each of them comes to life and is redeveloped. And yes, we can we can design Peachtree Street to be in fact enabling of that development. And it's not just office and commercial, yes, it is that. But the most important thing really at this point in downtown Atlanta is residential development having many, many more people living there. The more, the better. Hundreds of thousands.
1: Is it going to be affordable? Because that's a whole other conversation too. Well,
0: that's the other thing about downtown Atlanta that is so beneficial to the city is when you're developing in downtown Atlanta, Atlanta, you're not gentrifying people. I mean, this is a place that is relatively unoccupied. So you're talking about surface parking lots and you mentioned a few old commercial sites that need to be redeveloped. So you're not you're not displacing people by developing there, and you're taking some of the demand that exists and putting it in a location where you can build dents and you cannot displace people. And there's many ways that we've now created in the city where you ba- you build in more affordable living in the midst of market rate living.
1: But here's a question: Who is you build who is that you or who is that they because if the city's not developing these affordable units or as other developers come in affordability may not be at the top of their list you know that so who who should be the they that you're talking about or you build it's,
0: it's 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 many many um people and it's many organizations um the city has a role to play but it's mostly private developers as you say and but in every case that the, the city's been involved for underground Atlanta, for instance, Centennial Yards, there there will be affordable housing that are part of those developments. Did you say
1: Underground Atlanta? Not commissioner. All the city did was sell it to somebody and they ain't do anything with it now they just sold it to somebody else.
0: Come on. Yeah, man. but the first the first yeah, but the first building that would have been built, and I don't know it may still be built, that was uh, the the plan with the former owner now was an affordable housing apartment building.
1: I know. In we interviewed them, and they said they had all these wonderful plans, and now look, in 2020, it means no, absolutely No, but that, those, same,
0: those same requirements will be made of the new owner. And so you're talking about many different private developers here that will be building in downtown Atlanta. The Civic Center site, of course, is owned by the Housing Authority, so mm-hmm. that's a site where the city will play a big role uh, through the Housing Authority. And There'll be many different kinds of housing there. So the, the, the thing about it is that none of this will be, you won't have these things unless we make a city out of it. And the streets in downtown Atlanta, to a shocking degree, really are designed to get people on and off the interstates, period. Mm-hmm. That's, why, that's how they're designed. And that's not conducive to the kind of environment that people need and Uh, investment wants. And so all of these things, Centennial Yard, Underground, South Downtown area, which is a different thing that's happening, uh, Civic Center. Within Peachtree Center, where there's a lot of things happening, you have a new owner of the Peachtree Center itself and America's Mark. And everybody recognizes that for Atlanta to compete against the Nashvilles and the Dallases and everybody else, you've got to create a city that is a city. And and in Atlanta's case, as you know, Rose, many years ago for different reasons, there was a great effort to take everybody off the streets and put them in private spaces above the street and so forth. And we we abandoned the street. And at this point, it is essential to our future in a growing region that we go back to the street. that the street is for everybody, and that's what this study is about.
1: So, with this Peace Tree Shared Space Study, Commissioner Keene, y'all expect it will be completed in the March of next year. What information are you gathering? What are you trying to extrapolate from, whether it's business owners or residents? What data are you looking to get, and then what do you do with that?
0: It's a variety of things. Some of it is very technical around uh, how the traffic and Transportation aspects of this work and utilities and things like this. So some of it is very technical, but we've also had, as you mentioned, a series of public meetings with a great variety of people to talk about how we accomplish this and what people's expectations. Will well, be. what are you hearing? That, that includes people that live there, business owners, uh, students nearby, everybody, and what we're hearing is an incredible interest in this and. There's a lot of skepticism that we can do it. I mean, the, I think the the most common themes are great excitement that something like this could happen, but on the second on the on the on the second hand, great skepticism that it will actually occur, that Atlanta will think of and invest in streets this way. Those are the the main themes. But we've gotten pretty specific, rows for that section mm-hmm. in downtown as to how we would how we would do this and it's really the idea of turning the street almost into a plaza space. And people could drive through there, but it would primarily be designed for people walking and and biking and commerce that's happening on the street and living there, but you could still drive through it. And there's there's great examples of streets like this around the world. And we wouldn't propose this for every section of Petrie Street. It's just, you know, each section is different. It's just that this one, is really the center of the city if you said Mm -hmm. what's the center of atlanta you could argue i would argue it is this location and so we wouldn't replicate this everywhere but it's the right approach for this section of peachtree street and for atlanta
1: when the study is completed then where does it go
0: well what we're going to do is we're going to do and we're working with all the important parties here you mentioned georgia department of transportation and the atlanta regional commission and others on this study And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do a demonstration of the design uh, next year. So once the study is complete, as you said in March, we're going to include a demonstration in that work so that we can build the demonstration project right away, so next year, so people will be able to see this. And then I would expect that we would actually build it in phases. There's such interest in this. I will have to raise some money, of course. We don't know how much yet. This is relatively inexpensive when you consider big infrastructure projects. This is this is nothing compared to what we spend on streets in a lot of places, but we'll have to raise a little bit of money to build, I think, in phases, the shared street in that center of Atlanta.
1: You mentioned there were other corridors or streets. Can you name one, whether it's here in Georgia or in the nation? That- yeah,
0: the one that we use, sorry to, to go outside, the United States for this, but I'll mention Exhibition Road in London, but just because it's, it's a London converted Exhibition Road to a shared street recently. I mean, I think it was 2012 or so. So not too long ago, this isn't a hundred year old kind of design, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: but they remade Exhibition Road. It's a great example because it's similar in scale to what we're talking about here. You know, the length of it is similar. Mm -hmm. And the approach that they took is very similar as well. It's really kind of a plaza space and people can drive through it slowly. So that's the best example, I think. Now, in that case, of course, you don't quite have the density right right on the street mm-hmm. that you have here in Atlanta, but but obviously London is very dense, but right in terms of building height and that kind of thing. There are other examples around the country. Um, they tend to be smaller streets or neighborhood streets that have been made into Shared streets. I'll mention one: Argyle Street uh, on the north side of Chicago. Um, There's a great example: Bell Street in Seattle. So there are examples in the United States, and you know you could argue that this is, to large degree, what New York City did with Times Square. They literally closed the street to one of the streets to. vehicles and made it a plaza space, which, you know, think about that, you know, New York City, okay, we're going to really invest in streets this way. Let's go to the busiest location in the world and change the street. So, you know, what we're doing here is is a similar in terms of its intention, Mm -hmm. which is to make a space for people. In our case, we feel like it will be absolutely necessary in order to and basically enable or push or the private people to make the kind of investments that will result in a lively street. So, for instance, thinking about downtown Atlanta, that section at Peachtree Center or any of the hotels along there where you have many blank walls, Mm -hmm. um, you have a few businesses there, but there will be a great opportunity for those building owners to remake their ground floors into lively urban
1: Let me ask you this, because, and I'm looking at uh, some of the designs for Exhibition Road that you talked about, they have no traffic lights and the road signs there, I mean, so this is designed to slow down the speed of cars. Would MARTA still be able to travel through there? Because a lot of folks from Five Points MARTA station catch the bus, I don't know, I think it's the 110, the Peachtree bus that goes straight up Peachtree, would that still be a part of it, or would you have to reroute that bus?
0: The design would accommodate buses. It will will actually even accommodate in the thinking we did for the streetcar. There'd been plans to extend the streetcar north on Peachtree Street, so we took that into account. Essentially, our initial concept was to shift all of the kind of on-street parking and, and, and people space to the west side of the street and leave room on the east side of the street for cars, but also buses and other things. The point is the one you made at the start, which is, it's fine as long as they're going slowly.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, we we want the vehicles to be going slowly in the center of our city, where we have more people than any other place in Atlanta. A slow car, a slow bus is, is, is a hugely positive thing in that environment. We need the cars and the buses and everything, that's good. It's just that they're going slowly. And really the design of the street is the most important element of that.
1: You mentioned you need a little bit of money, so here comes the money question before we wrap up. I take it the mayor has put that in your budget? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this is, as everybody knows, this is a challenging budget year, and next year probably will be as well. The, the funding for this is, first of all, we don't know how much it will be yet. We will in March. As I said, it will be relatively inexpensive when it comes to these kinds of things. And we have great partners here that I think will all be seeking to invest in this, not just the city. I see this as something that private people will invest in and various government agencies, whether it's GDOT or ARC helping us with it. You know, that's why everybody's involved to design something that everybody sees value in and we can all partner together to fund and, and build.
1: And you're also talking about going through the heart of downtown Atlanta, where you have a number of unsheltered folks who need resources and assistance.
0: Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, we included that aspect of things in our design workshop last week. This is critical that that we're thinking about people that uh, must, uh, at least for some time in their life, live on the street and how we welcome them and how we care for them and how we design for them and uh, all. Different. That's why I say this. This is this should be a street for everybody, mm-hmm. including people that are that, that for some time uh, are have to live on the street. And so that's an essential element of this.
1: Well, and it's something that we definitely want to stay on top of. Tim King, Commissioner of Atlanta's Department of City Planning, talking about the Peachtree Shared Space Study, which looks at that Peace Tree section in downtown Atlanta to reimagine this. Commissioner, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. We shall see, huh?
0: Thank you so much for having me, Rose. Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you soon. All right. This thing is over with, and I will be at the, next time I see you, I'll be at the studio.